Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Musson household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Legoyim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh. Nora Tehilot. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none you are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natanlanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together... Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat. La'asot et hashabat ladoratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. K'sheshet yamin asa aronai et hashamayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Leolam Vaed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Veshinantam levanecha, v'libartabam, v'shivtecha, v'bethcha, uvlechtecha, v'derech, uvshuch becha, uvkumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This is a promise. From the Father to His people. If my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and pray. And if my, people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and will forgive their sin. And I'll hear their land I'll hear their land I'll hear their land I'll hear their land with us if my people, if my people who, are who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my faith and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal and will forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land, 
Heal our land Oh, heal our land Heal our land If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my faith. Keep me to your Shalom, everyone, and uh, welcome to our Arab Shabbat service. Uh, this Sabbath, we open up the book of Exodus for the first time. Our Torah portion is called Shemot, which means names, and it recounts the story of the 70 persons uh, that, that went down into Egypt, and it recounts that because now in the book of Exodus, that 70 is now going to become a whole nother group of people, the names are listed for many of them, that will be coming up out of Egypt. The, um, the story also is where 
All of a sudden, Moses becomes the central character for the remainder of the Torah. And for the most part, the book of Exodus is really dealing with the subject of the Exodus out of Egypt. But in the latter part, the latter chapters, it will address Israel in the wilderness and the construction of the tabernacle uh, and the garments for the priests and the furnishings uh, that went into the tabernacle. There's much to be learning in the book of Exodus and uh, to tell us all about it. In fact, it's my uh, position that the story of the Exodus is one of the most powerful prophetic uh, messages that we have in all of the Bible because it's really telling us the story about redemption. It's telling us about how God brings us out of the slavery in that case of Egypt, in our case, the slavery to sin, and that we're redeemed, we're purchased out of it with a price. Uh, and you'll hear about the story of the Passover lamb. We know the Messiah is our Passover lamb. He's the one who's redeemed us out of sin, given us our freedom in the Lord, and uh, taken us out of Egypt on a trip, future trip to the promised land, his kingdom. So tremendous biblical themes, tremendous themes that fit into the Messiah. That is the beginning of our story in the book of Shemot. Now, um, there's a part in this first portion where it's talking about how that Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph anymore. And Joseph was the one who helped Egypt to get through the great seven-year famine. And this Pharaoh has come along, and he doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember what were the good things that the children of Israel did for Egypt. And so he's on his own campaign. And we, in the midst of that, he becomes, he becomes uh, fearful uh, that the number of Israelites being born is going to somehow be a future attack against him. So he begins to oppress uh, the children of Israel and uh, forbids the birth of the male children. They have to be thrown in the Nile River, and thus we have the story of how Moses is born and how he is um, uh, preserved uh, from that judgment and actually becomes raised uh, by one of the daughters of Pharaoh. And Moses now comes onto the scene uh, having a Hebrew background and understanding Pharaoh's background in his house, and God begins to use him as the man who is going to be bringing about deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, there's a particular part in that story where it talks about how the children of Israel began to cry out and because of the, their taskmasters. And, and they had all heard, and this was well understood, that God had given, before they ever went down there, a prophecy to Abraham. This is in Genesis 15 that the descendants of Abraham would go down into that land, that they would be there for four generations, and that they would be oppressed, but that God would not leave them there, that God would come and deliver them out of that place and bring them back uh, to the land. They had heard that prophecy. They knew that prophetic scenario was supposed to take place. So when they began to cry out, they're crying out, kind of not only complaining about the oppression that was coming upon them, but they're also crying out to God saying, hey, God, what are you doing? When are you, you going to show up? 
you know, we have this promise and this plan. Uh, you know, what, are you ignoring us? What, what are you doing? And, and they began to question God as to what he was really doing on their behalf. So when you have Moses uh, going to the burning bush, why God is going to dispatch Moses to address those things. He's going to address uh, the dealings with Pharaoh, but he's also going to address with regard to um, the, uh, the people's needs. Now, if you also recall, Moses in this portion also has to be given uh, specific instructions on how to present himself to the children of Israel uh, because uh, they're despondent because of the hard bondage and so forth, and they don't want to believe. And it clearly says that, and that Moses has to go through an extra effort to alert them and tell them, hey, good things are getting ready to happen. Hang in there. We're going we're gonna to go. Now, with that said, we have a very interesting Hoftor portion. And I want to focus in on this because the theme of this portion ties back to the Torah portion over the issue of the people becoming despondent, apathetic toward God, and so forth, and they keep hearing the same things over and over again about what God's going to do, and they basically get to the point where they start ignoring it, and they don't believe it, and they start complaining. And so this portion is selected to go along with that reminder of that teaching that's in this week's Torah portion. So let me take you to Isaiah uh, chapter 27. Uh, <clears throat> and we're going to look at chapter 27 and chapter 28. Let me read just a bit for you from chapter 27. We're going to begin at verse 6. And then we'll address how does this tie back to that. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6, it says, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Sounds like a wonderful message, right? Well, the children of Israel have heard that, heard that, heard that again, again. You know, you know, the kingdom's supposed to be coming. Hey, you know, we're supposed to go to the promised land just like Abraham, you know, got the promise. We're all supposed to go, but we're not there yet. So everybody's, you know, like, we've heard this. And so he's reminding it. Verse 7. Like the striking of him who struck them as he struck them, as he struck them, or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? Thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind he expelled them on the day of the east wind. That's a reminder of what God really did in dealing with Pharaoh. That he used an east wind and he drove away Pharaoh and his chariots. Uh, that God really did do that. Verse 9, Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. And he's talking about Israel moving away from idolatry. Israel will be vindicated when they move away from all of their idolatry. Verse 10, for the fortified city is isolated, a homestead foreborn, forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. And when its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them. 
For they are not a people of discernment, therefore their stalker, their maker, will not have compassion uh, on them, and their creator will not um, be gracious to them. And now this is the key statement that's being made. All, despite all that has taken place, despite what the Lord has said, despite what the Lord has done, despite the promises that he's still offering to do, the things he said, I will still do the following things. The people have become despondent. They, um, it just doesn't register with them anymore. They become dull with regard to what the Lord is, is doing with them. And so the Lord is saying, why should I have compassion on you? Uh, why should I be gracious to you? I mean, you're, I'm doing all this for you, and you're ignoring me. You know, how, how would you feel if you went out of your way to help somebody out, multiple things, and had given them a hope into the future of helping them, and they basically, you know, accept your help, and then they turn around and ignore you? Well, I'll tell you what happens to me. My, my first thought is, I'm not doing anything further for you. Um, and by the way, I think most people have had similar experiences. I certainly have had that. And I've certainly had that feeling. And so God is expressing that. Verse 12, And it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria, those scattered in the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now those two verses, my friends, <laughs> cross-reference over to a much bigger, bigger biblical theme, namely the day of the Lord and the final redemption of Israel at the end of the ages. So before we go any further, let's take a step back because the parallel that's being expressed here is that um, the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, cried out to the Lord and complained to the Lord, uh, you know, that they were, it was inconvenient and they were being oppressed and where's the promise that you gave to us to go to the promised land? And then God fulfilled that, brought Israel into the promised land. Now we're in the time of the prophets. Now we're in the days of Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying, you're doing the same thing again. The children of Israel, you know, the house of Judah, is not paying attention anymore. You're not listening to the instructions of the Lord anymore. You are doing your own thing and ignoring the Lord. Don't you remember us telling you that there's going to be a final redemption, the coming of the Messiah, purchasing you out of sin, getting you out of Egypt, getting you into the promised land, the future promised land with the Messiah? Don't you remember that? But you know they've heard that before. They've heard it over and over and over again. And it just, they don't hear it anymore. Um, and clearly, Isaiah is referring to the day of the Lord, the end of the ages. So let's fast forward to us today. 
And I find this particular Haftor portion to be very personal. Let me explain why. In this generation that we are in, dating back to 1948, we saw Israel become a nation again. There was no way that you could have the end time prophecies happening if there wasn't a nation of Israel. While Israel was scattered in the nations, there was no nation of Israel. There was no scenario of how the prophecies would fit. Because the prophecies all demand that the house of Judah has to be in the land again. That the Jews have to be in the land again to get into the end time scenario. Having to do with the altar being rebuilt and all, all that goes on with the end time scenario. So when Israel became a nation in 1948, this rocked the theological world. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but evangelical Christianity prior to that was considered to be a heretic sect in Christianity. World Council churches had said all this talk about Israel being reestablished as a nation, as the Bible prophecy requires, that's nonsense, that's heresy, that's not true. Until 1948 came, all of a sudden the World Council churches was having to eat their own words. And the evangelicals who had been arguing for this, the pro-Israel contingent, all of a sudden they hit the map. Now in the course of the last 70 plus years, here we are, evangelical Christianity is thriving. It's all because of this prophetic scenario about uh, Israel being reestablished as a nation. And in this generation, we have begun to focus on the second coming. And the, the, the discussions have been about exactly how does he come? Does he come suddenly? Does he come, you know, before the day of the Lord stuff, before the great tribulation? Does he come after the great tribulation? Lots of discussion about the prophetic scenario and how it's all supposed to happen. And we've seen multiple books come out and multiple teachers and so forth speaking on the subject. In fact, I've been a public proponent of this subject for more than 35 years. And I, I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of other people. And so all this word has been going out, even amongst the evangelical Christianity about what's going on. But if you go right now today and you go up and you just kind of pulse a broad spectrum of evangelical Christians, you know, the ones that go to church and so forth, how interested are they in this topic about that we could possibly be the last generation and the Messiah could be coming very, very shortly. Oh, everybody gives lip service to the discussion, but how motivated are they? They're about as motivated as the children of Israel were listening to the prophets in their day about the subject of the final redemption and the coming of the Messiah. Not really a spit of difference. They're really not paying attention to the prophetic scenario. They don't know what the prophecies really say. They've heard some things, you know, and, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But they don't know the details. And if they were put to the test to say, can you give me an analysis? What are the evidences that says, yes, we are the last generation. Yes, the Lord is getting ready to come. Versus, show me the evidences that says, no, I think it could be a while longer, you know, we'll have to see, see what else happens. Very few.
could sit down and delineate such a discussion or argument. Very few. For me, back 35 years ago, I found compelling information that the right, the, all the pieces are coming together now as to exactly what is the sequence and how will they all fill all in and when exactly will this happen because that's always the great question. We can see the pieces but when does it come together? When, when, when does it happen? Before in previous generation they didn't even have the pieces. This generation we have the pieces now. Now when, when do they all come together? And initially when I've gone out and shared information on this and I've pointed out here's the pieces and laid out the argument for why we should be paying attention just like the Messiah said we should be watching uh, dutifully doing the duty of a watchman you know for this don't let it catch us unawares don't be sleeping on watch you know all the exhortations that the Messiah gave to us about this as I go through it we go through this little period where the people hear the information, this new information, and there's great excitement, and it comes up, and what they were expecting doesn't quite happen. You know, and, oh, we're still stuck in Egypt, you know, for a while longer. You know, well, how, how much longer? I don't know, you know. Uh, okay, and then their interest wanes. And it drops back down to where it was before. Like they never heard anything, like it doesn't, doesn't amount to anything. There's a lot of people who've done analysis on the end time prophetic scenario and they said that there, there are one particular historical event stands out above all the other events that should cause you to wake up and believe the Messiah could be coming in your days and that is when Israel became a modern nation again. And I concur. Like I said, that's been going on for 70 years. Oh, yeah, but we've had to wait so long and for the Lord to do the other things he wants to do. So we're getting tired. And, and I've had a lot of my audience who've heard me teach on the prophetic scenario, gotten very excited about it for a while. And then all of a sudden, things don't quite happen as fast as everybody was hoping they would happen. The, the possible scenarios pan out, and, and we're still looking. All of the pieces are still there. We're looking for the combination when they will actually occur. And a lot of them just become dull of hearing. And really, when I get up and I speak on the subject, you know, oh, we, Monty, we've, we've heard all that before. We, re we really don't want to hear that anymore. Now, I want you to understand something. That doesn't offend me. I am not here complaining uh, because you don't want to hear or listen to the subject of the prophetic scenario or the coming of the Lord. Why? Because the prophets even speak about what you're doing. That's part of the prophecy, too. Part of the prophecy is in the last days, you'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything goes on as it has before. Whether you realize or not, you're part of the prophecy. Another confirmation that we are moving in the right direction. Now, if you want to be that part of the fulfillment of the prophecy, you want to be the one who ignored the Lord, who was asleep at the watch when he showed up 
Well, you can go ahead and fulfill that part of the Word of God. You are definitely going to be part of the Word of God. Or, and I prefer this one, I would prefer to be the ones that are called the good and faithful servants. They're waiting at the gate and the door for the master. That the master finds the servant doing his duty correctly. I want to tell you a quick, short story. I've shared this with other veteran friends of mine. Um, back when I used to be in the United States Navy, and one of the places where I was at was um, I was in San Diego at a Naval Air Station where they had the F-14 program, you know, Top Gun, the F-14s. And the, in those days, the F-14 was really coming into the fleet. It was a new airplane, and there was one big squadron, a training squadron that I was assigned to, and uh, uh, there at Miramar, and I was of sufficient rank that once every six weeks or so I would have to stand a watch either all night on Saturday night or all night on Sunday night, and I had another fellow that we'd switch off, and um, that uh, we would be in charge of all the flight line watches and all the other guards that were around the base. Now, there wasn't a lot of high security on, on this base. There wasn't fencing that kept you away from the flight line. Once you got on the base, you really had access to the flight line and the squadrons and, and things like that. In, in today's terms, it, it wasn't that terribly secure. So the duty was on the watches to challenge anybody coming and make sure they were doing fine. Well, this one particular weekend, we get this new guy who just got assigned. He's fresh out of boot camp. I mean, this guy hasn't been in the Navy, you know, more than about 14 weeks. He's a brand new recruit that has come into the fleet. And so guess what? We assigned him. He's going to stand the flight line watch from midnight till 4 in the morning on Sunday night. The worst watch that you can possibly stand. Since he's the junior man, he's got it. And it just happened to be the coin flip that this buddy of mine, he was standing the ASDO watch over that guy on Sunday night, midnight to 4, when that was taking place. I was on Saturday night. So this happened to this friend of mine and, and the scenario that happened. So here's uh, my buddy who's like me, standing the watch, and we have this brand new boot camper who's standing out on the flight line, you know, looking in, in the flight line with a bunch of F-14s sitting around. And the program manager for the Navy's F-14 program, who's an admiral, he happens to be at the base that Sunday night. And he's gone to the O Club to have dinner, you know, with his uh, wife and friends. He gets done with dinner and he's had, had a good time and he decides, you know what he wants to do? He wants to go see his F-14s. The Admiral certainly has the right to go see it. So he drives up to the, where the squadron's at in the flight line, gets out of his car, walks right out there on the flight line in the midst of those airplanes. And guess who he meets? This young boot camper who don't know nothing, okay? But he does know this, that somebody walks into your area that you're standing guard to, you're to challenge them. Halt, who goes there? 
And the person's supposed to identify themselves. And there's a procedure by where you take your ID out and you put it on the deck and you step back and he's got to check your ID and, and verify who you are. Well, the admiral, when he walks out there and he gets challenged by the walk, halt, who goes there? He uses his nickname. He doesn't say, I'm Admiral so-and-so. He gives his nickname. Of course, everybody in the F-14 program knew that nickname, except for this boot camper. He don't know that. So the boot camper thinks the guy is trying to give him a hard time. Well, he gets that nightstick out, and he gets a little bit threatening. He's going to stand his duty, and he made him, under threat, get down on his face on that wet, cold flight line, getting, getting his clothes wet, his civilian clothes wet, and gets his ID card because he doesn't have a flashlight out there. He can't read the ID card. So he then gets him up and escorts him up to um, the ASDO, you know, the guy's my counterpart. And here comes the Admiral Schwoosh Need of the F-14 program in there, and he's all wet, and he is upset. I mean, the wet hen thing, you know, the whole bit. And um, this buddy of mine, he's like scared to death as to what's going to happen. And this boot camper still doesn't understand what he really did. He just did what he was trained to do. Well, guess what? Monday morning at quarters, the admiral comes and has written a letter of appreciation to this young boot camper to put in his service record because he did his duty correctly. No matter how dumb or naive he was, he still did what he was supposed to do. And he was so impressed that his F-14s had been guarded on that flight line, he wanted to recognize that he had done his duty. Now, the other guy and I, we were thinking, thank you, Lord, we had a boot camper there, because if we'd had a real fleet sailor there, <laughs> this thing would have been a mess um, for it. Now, the reason I tell you that story, there's a lot of people running around that are like fleet sailors. Ah, we've seen it all. We know all about it. I don't need to pay any attention anymore to what's going on with the end time scenario, the last generation, blah, blah. He's going to come eventually. Who knows? Problem is, the scripture says he's going to show up when you're not expecting him. And it does say that. But it does say this. Those that are expecting him, those that are paying attention, they're going to be rewarded. They're going to do well. The master will reward them. And this is a constant lesson that we have in the history of Israel, dating back to waiting to come out of Egypt when Israel was in the land waiting for the Messiah to come. Even to this day, the Messiah is supposed to be coming, but what are we doing? Are we really paying attention? Are we really focused in on what the Lord has said? Are we believing his promises, or are we, we think we're smarter than what's going on? And oh, by the way, all that stuff you've been putting out for years, Monty, we really don't. We've heard all of it. We don't really need to pay attention. Please continue to do that. You are fulfilling some key prophecies that we need fulfilled so we can get to the end time scenario. So you're not offending me whatsoever. But I would 
it is my duty to give you counsel. Maybe you should learn the lesson of the past multiple times over, and maybe you shouldn't be asleep at the watch when the master returns. And oh, by the way, just for the record of it, we are very close to that happening. And we're going to watch, continue to watch and, and alert the brethren as we see events taking place. Shabbat Shalom to all of you this Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, to chapter 7. Hold your finger at verse 17, where we will do our Brit Hadashah portion for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for giving us your Sabbath and allowing us this time, this opportunity to teach and share the Word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words would just jump off of the page this week and that it would minister to us, strengthen us, and tell us those stories of old that we might learn and become better followers of you in all the words and all the things that is taught for this week and for all the weeks to come. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give to us here in this place and on this day. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion this week is Shemot, the first portion in the book of Exodus. This is where the entire story of the Torah has now shifted away from the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And now we learn about the name, a man named Moses. And that the whole story, this is where the story begins of Moses and him being called by God to pull the children of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, and out of Egypt. This is, of course, sometime after Joseph being the one, being the Hebrew that uh, saved the entire world, interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, became the viceroy of Egypt, and then years go by, and it says in the Scripture that a Pharaoh rises up that does not remember Joseph. I don't know how you necessarily forget that in the course of a period of years and history, but nevertheless, that's what happened. A Pharaoh rises up, and then the children of Israel who came down to, into Egypt to be preserved, to be saved from the famine and all of these things, they grow into a great company, a great multitude. And this is where the story of the Ten Commandments, the Exodus, the plagues of Egypt, all of these things, Pharaoh hardening his heart, all of that story now begins here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So here for our Brit Hadashah portion, what we want to do is we want to always teach the principles and teach the story of the Torah through the New Testament, through the eyes of the New Testament. Well, we have an amazing passage of Scripture here in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen the martyr, when he is counting and recounting the history of Israel, all the things that he knows in the power of God and what God has done for the children of Israel when he's here and he's on trial in all of these things, and what happens is he's, he's telling the story. He's telling the story as concise as anyone probably could sum up the Scripture. And so here in uh, Acts chapter 7 at verse 17, he goes through pretty much everything we're going to experience in our Torah portion, and he sums it all up with these words. So let me now read Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 17, and hear the words of Stephen. This is a firsthand witness of a, of a first century person in how he knew the story to be of what the children of Israel experienced and what happened with Moses back in Egypt. Beginning here now at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, when God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. 
This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them, and they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This, Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. Obviously, that last little bit, he's continuing on in the story and the deliverance of the exodus of the children of Israel. But here we have some of the summation of what is contained in our Torah portion for this week, the portion of Shemot. We're introduced to Moses being born. And there's interesting details that come here in the testimony of Stephen that are actually go a little bit beyond what is actually in Exodus, when it specifically says that he was hidden away for three months specifically. That it's like some have speculated, what, what is this deal where he was able to be hidden for three months? Because one of the things that we remember is that the Pharaoh had commanded all the children of Israel, any sons born, to be cast into the Nile that there was some population control going on by that Pharaoh and that they were all to be killed. And so he was able to be concealed for three months. Some have speculated that this is actually one of these things, one of the opinions that Moses may have been born premature and that we, he was born premature. So then there was an expectation of when he would be born. So the soldiers and the Egyptians would come looking for him at a certain time but he was able to be born and was able to be preserved for at least three months before the Egyptians came knocking. That's one of the theories. And so the whole thing about him being delivered as well, there's many theories about him being floated on the River Nile and he was simply being hidden away in an ark or in a basket 
but we know the story the daughter of Pharaoh found him. And there's been much deeper studies as to the fact that why him knowing that he was a Hebrew baby, was he allowed to remain alive? And then Rico uh, Cortez has a great teaching about how the fact that there was the ancient Nile God, what the Egyptians would have believed is that if this baby was floated on the water and he had been cast into the water, that then the, the Nile God had spoken and had delivered the baby. So they would have uh, kept this baby alive because the God spoke and preserved the life of the baby. Very fascinating and very plausible explanation as to why knowing Moses was a Hebrew, why he was left alive. We can dig into all of those different stories and, and, and all of the things in the birth of Moses and, and what his life was like. Interesting other details that come here from the story of Stephen here is he says that it was 40 years old that he, when he visited his brethren and that was, is when he killed the Egyptian. This is an interesting contrast because you'll find other extra biblical texts specifically the book of Yasher and others that would say that Moses was 18 years old when he killed the Egyptian and then fled. Here we have the testimony of Stephen in the first century in our canonized scripture saying he was 40 years old when this happened. Again, theories and trying to figure out and understand which is true, which is not. It's also fascinating by by Stephen's testimony that Moses' life had three very distinct periods of time in it, all of them being 40 years in length. We know Moses lived to 120 years old. If he lived his first 40 years in the house of Pharaoh as an Egyptian, and that the next 40 years he was then in Midian and was a shepherd, and then it was at 80 years old, he was called by God with the burning bush and then goes to Egypt and delivers the children of Israel. And for the last 40 years of his life is the wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Very fascinating distinction to three separate equal lengths of time in the life of Moses. Fascinating details that we can continue to dig in and go into. But one of the things that I do want to draw out of the teaching that comes from the first portion in Exodus that I hope to convey is this experience of Moses in the burning, with the burning bush where he's speaking to God and God is revealing himself to Moses. See, that's, what, that, that's the part that kind of speaks to all of us who are believers, all of us who are seeking after God calling upon God, praying to Him in our time of need, worshiping Him, thanking Him for the food that we eat, thanking Him for everything that we do. For those of us that have a strong prayer life, who are believers, who pray before every meal, who pray with our kids when they put them to bed, all of us are on some kind of journey to try and figure out, you know, how does God reveal Himself to us? And you sit here and you look at Moses and you're like, wow, Imagine that if each and every one of us in the course of our life could have a burning bush experience that you could not deny, that you could not argue with, this supernatural thing of a bush that's on fire or some other sort of thing that you know can't exist in the natural world. And out of that thing comes the booming voice of God speaking to you clear as day what you are to do next. What an amazing blessing that would be if each of us as believers could have that kind of experience. Now, some of us actually do have testimonies of things like this happening, of feelings like which the God, God revealed Himself to you in, in some miraculous way and the time in which you became a believer for the very first time. Some of us do have testimonies of a burning bush-like experience. Now, I don't know if, all, if they necessarily compare to what happened with Moses here, Because clearly with Moses, seeing something supernatural that couldn't possibly happen, 
God speaking to him so much so that say, oh, by the way, take off your shoes. Like, I mean, God is speaking to Moses as clearly as if you invited somebody into your home and he had a rule in your home where you wanted people to take off their shoes at the entryway and you told them clear as day, oh, could you please remove your shoes? This is how God spoke to Moses. We, don't want, we could only hope that God would be so clear with us. And he reveals himself to us. He reveals his name. He reveals the name of God, and it's in our Torah portion for this week that we get and receive the memorial name of God. yod He vav He, the Tetragrammaton that's been translated, and people have spent their entire lives trying to figure out how to properly say it. What's the right pronunciation? What's the proper pronunciation? Some people get a little caught up in some of those things. It's a struggle sometimes when people overemphasize one particular thing of how to say a certain name. I can think about it this way. If, I ever, if I'm ever talking to somebody that has a particular accent or from a different country, and if they were ever to try to say my name, you know it's going to sound different from every single person that tries to say my name, Ephraim. I might prefer the pronunciation Ephraim, which is just kind of an American quick way of saying it. But if somebody wanted to call me Ephraim, Ephraim, it's all going to sound a little bit different, but I know who you're talking about. And also, if you have an accent or I know you're from a certain way that has a different dialect or a certain, uh, you know, you don't pronounce certain sounds in your alphabet or your language as much. In Hebrew, they use the sound when they're speaking, but in the English, we don't say that at all. So it's like everybody's going to have a different kind of pronunciation. This is one of the things that's always encouraged me to not be so focused on how to pronounce the name of God. Truly, what God wants to know in his people is what their heart is. Does their heart love God? Is their heart tuned to God? Or is it just this cavalier relationship that we have with God that we just sort of like casually speak about God, talk about God, or does God know what our heart is truly to follow after Him? You know, there's sometimes my children don't really say daddy or mommy very well, or they, but if I see what the, that they're coming to me or this, we misspeak all the time, my heart sees their heart and their love toward me and I don't have a problem if what came out of their mouth sounded a little bit different or wonky. And I would have the same, I would, I would express the same thing to my friends in New Zealand and anybody who's, uh, who's from Europe that would say a name, say my name, say God's name, say the name of this ministry in some sort of strange way. And I would never be offended at that because I know they have a different dialect. It just sounds a little different. That's one of the things why I never want to overemphasize for me personally one particular pronunciation of God's name over the other, and to dare say that somebody isn't saved because they don't say it the right way. I'm never going to be one that's going to die on that particular hill. But here we have, once again, of course, God is trying to reveal His character to us. It's not about the name. It's about His character. Who is He? What power does He have? What's His desire? He loves His people, the children of Israel who are in Egypt, then he says, I have surely heard their suffering and their oppression, and I will go, and I'm sending you to go and do this. God has love for his people. The covenant that he made with Abraham extends throughout all the generations of Abraham. It also extends to anyone who's adopted into the family of Abraham, that his love is for them. This is the character of God. He's going to send somebody, and he is going to make himself known to the world. Make himself known to the Egyptians. 
And it's not about what the, his name is, because all the Egyptians, all they had all these names of all these gods. And does God just want to be one more name on top of all the other gods and just be like, oh yeah, that's the one true God, but all of these other gods, and here's the names, and here's the list, and here's the... No, 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 no. What God is trying to reveal in all things in the course of our lives and in the course of history is who He is and the power that He has and what, what, his, what his character is. That's what God is revealing. It's not about the name. And God is d- d- using Moses, this man, that he's going to speak through him. He's going to perform signs and wonders with him. And he's going to, to lead him, and he gives him this burning bush experience that then is going to cause him to be the vessel by which God is revealed. God is going to use him and speak his words through Moses and showing Pharaoh and showing the children of Israel. And he's giving him signs and wonders. One of the cool things also is this is not the only time that God performed this great sign or this great miracle to lead a man to be the one who's now going to speak the words of God. And this is where we get to tie another passage from the New Testament in with our Torah portion. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Now, this isn't the first time that this event is recounted, but what we have here is we have the story of Paul, Shaul of Tarsus, the man who was a Pharisee, the man who was actually one of the ones that persecuted Stephen, who stood by idly while Stephen was martyred at the time because he had not yet come into faith and become a disciple of Yeshua. See, because what happened to him was he had an experience. He had an experience on the road to Damascus. Now, that's recorded for us earlier in the book of Acts. But once again, we have another trial here of Paul on trial, and he's recounting what he saw, what he experienced. And it's amazing to me the parallel of that the same sort of thing in this instance of what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus is so similar to actually what happened to Moses in the burning bush. So in Acts chapter 22... Now let's begin at verse 6, and let's listen to this testimony of Paul and the things that he said and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near to Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Shaul, receive your sight. And at the same hour I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, and I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, 
for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Let me go ahead and stop there. You can see some of the same revelations that are happening with Paul in Acts, and you see the similarity between what Moses was called and how he was called as well. It's amazing the word persecution is in both of them because God said to Moses, Surely I've seen the persecution of my children of Israel, of my, of my people in, Israel, in Egypt. And here Yeshua speaks to Paul and he says, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing the things that you have done? And again, this supernatural event that takes place is what gives the revelation to Paul to know this is of the Lord. This is the Lord calling me and leading me to now do something that I haven't done before. A new area of ministry, a new area of work, just like Moses. Moses is 80 years old. He's already lived a long life. And now this whole new thing that he's going to do is he's going to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, Paul, he's getting the same call. And I love here what this devout man says to him as well, where he says, The God of your fathers has chosen you that you will know His will and you will hear the voice of His mouth and you will be a witness to all men. You can see some of the almost the same language that's being spoken to Moses that what he is now going to do when, he, when God says, I will be in your mouth, I will put my words in your mouth. And so the amazing parallel, and here we have Paul in the New Testament, Moses in the Old Testament, and this revelation once again of God using these men, giving a burning bush-like experience filled with light and with glory and with, with majesty to let them know this is now the calling that is on their life. Once again, God has a pattern of doing this. Now, does that mean that we need to just sit on our hands as all believers? We just need to sit on our hands and wait for some kind of burning bush before we decide to, to do what God has called us to do? No, we need to continue to pursue God, pursue the Lord in all the things that He's taught us to do, obeying His Word, obeying His commandment. Some of us are called to do great things and to do great work. All of us could, could um, I believe any one of us has the potential to be the next Moses or the next Paul who God has a plan and a purpose to do great things and to work in ministry and, and, and to teach the people and that God will use them and speak through them to minister to the people. God has a pattern of doing this. Both the Old and New Testament testify of that. So what we need to do is we need to continue to follow after the commands of God, continue to seek Him and His character and who He is and the power that He is. And if God ever comes and calls upon us that we say, yes, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Use me. Show me what it is that you'd have me to do. And sometimes he'll use other people around us to speak life into you and say, this is what the will of God is for your life. And we need to always be receptive to that and understanding of that because God is in the, in the business of revealing himself to the world. We always want to pray that Lord will reveal himself, not in the way that he did to the Egyptians with great signs and judgments and wonders and turning your life completely upside down and rocking your world to let you know that he's there. Sometimes some of us are so stubborn and hard-hearted that uh, that's exactly what God has to do to get our attention. Hopefully we're ones that instead are walking righteously, uprightly, 
Maybe we're just going about our day. Maybe we're just shepherding a flock, going about our job, but we're doing so understanding the power of God, what God has done, so that if someday comes, you never know, if God then says, hey, you, come over here. Show, let me show you this. I will now, you're now going to do this in your life. Follow my will. Speak my words. Hopefully we're all in a place in which the Lord gets our attention that way, than perhaps needing great signs and judgments to get our attention. Sometimes the Lord has to use those things too when it comes to flashing neon signs. If, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as your car breaking down or something, something happening to you to where you couldn't get to your job that day or you lost a job or something happening in your family. In all cases, usually it's God trying to get your attention for you to stop and think, hmm, what path have I been on? What have I been doing that perhaps I need to change. I want my heart to be humble. I wish that I could just follow God and do what He wants me to do. Well, that's the approach we need to take. We need to be ready for that call if it ever comes. Now, other parallels to our tour portion for, the, for Shemot for this week. One, very obvious one. You have the Pharaoh of Egypt telling and commanding for the killing of the babies of the, of the Hebrews to be cast into the River Nile. And that obviously there's a, there, there's a couple of there's speculation about that as to whether um, there, some uh, biblical texts say that there is, was a prophecy that there would be some savior that was born of the Hebrews that was going to deliver the Hebrews, the slave, all the slaves from Egypt. So to keep that from happening, we were going to kill all the sons of the Hebrews so that there was no prophet that came along. Some people speculate that that may have actually been a true story or something, and that's why Moses, he, because if that was a prophecy, truly Moses was the fulfillment of that prophecy. What a fascinating thing that that is. But also in Matthew chapter 2, we also have the story of Herod the king of Israel, Judea at the time, that him the killing of the innocents of all the sons that were born in Bethlehem, where God calling Mary and Joseph, who had just birthed the Messiah, and that, he was, that they were commanded to flee to Egypt so that they might be preserved. And all of this story with the wise men being sent by Herod, and then they don't ever come back to actually report back to Herod. Herod becomes angry, and so he commands that all of the sons, two years old and younger, anyone that was around in the area of Bethlehem, that all of those children were to be killed. You see the exact same parallel with Pharaoh with the life of Moses being preserved and also the life of Yeshua being preserved in the New Testament. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the other amazing parallels that has to be drawn out when it comes to this Torah portion. When God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, Moses goes, talks back to the Lord and he says, Lord, how will the people know that you have sent me, that I'm not just on my own accord coming and saying, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt? How will the people know? And if you remember correctly, God gives Moses three signs, three specific signs and miracles that he can do and perform for the people that will show that God's power is in Moses. And of course, you remember what the signs were. A couple of the signs were this. You had the serpent. that Moses, he took a staff and he put it on the ground and it turned into a serpent. More than likely a cobra is what we think it was based on the Egyptian culture and things, that this was also going to be a sign to show the power of God over one of the gods of Egypt. In fact, the cobra was the sign of Pharaoh. 
Every pharaoh always had the, the, the cobra little symbol on his headdress and that that was a, a symbol of the power of pharaoh. And so if Moses comes along, takes a stick, an inanimate object, turns it into to a serpent, and then picks it back up again and turns back into a stick, it's showing that Moses has the power over that symbol. This was going to be an affront, of course, to pharaoh. What in the other sign, of course, he says, Moses, take your hand, put it into your cloak. Put it in his cloak, pulled it out. It was leprous. It was white, it was spotted and leprous. Then he puts it back into his cloak, pulls it out, and it's healed, and it's clean, and it's, it's healed again, just like normal. So he gives them this power of showing instant healing, specifically healing of leprosy. And then, of course, he gives them Moses the, the third sign in which that he says that you can stretch out your staff over the water, and he can turn water into blood. This, of course, was the very first judgment of the plagues of Egypt that the entire River Nile was turned to blood. Water in the, in the house of the Hebrews were, were, was still water, but then water not only in the Nile, but also in jars and in pots, and that water was turned to blood. Now, these miracles, we all know the stories, of course, that this is what Moses could do, and we've seen them played out in movies and different things like that, and surely these are, sure, these are great signs to show the people uh, that God's power has been, and Moses has been called by God to perform these miracles and to be the one that delivers the children of Israel. So now let's go to Yeshua. What are the signs that Yeshua did, the miracles that Him as the Savior of the world, what are some of the miracles that He was able to do? Now, perhaps the order is slightly reversed, but I guarantee you that there's absolutely clear representation of each and every one of these things that Yeshua did as well. If you turn to John chapter 2, we have the very first miracle of the Messiah in which he was at the wedding at the Canaan, at Cana of Galilee. And it says here, and it says, The mother of Yeshua was there. Now both Yeshua and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Yeshua said to him, They have no wine. And Yeshua said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I don't know what the, truly the dynamic between Yeshua and His mother exactly were in this whole situation. I'm, I'm, I try to b- look at it and say, you know, if Yeshua was sort of like saying His time wasn't yet, then why still was a miracle performed? Eh, question marks. But needless to say, He performs this miracle. And now there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Yeshua said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled it up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests are well drunk, then the inferior... And you have kept the good wine until now? Obviously, this was some of the best wine. It was obviously very good. Not only is this just water into wine and that it's cheap wine. No, the the Messiah made a great miracle of a fine wine. I appreciate a good glass of red wine. I can certainly appreciate how good this wine probably tastes. And this, it says in verse 11, This beginning of signs Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. The beginning of signs. The first sign, water into wine. Now, this is one of those struggles for some of our brethren who uh, have an issue with strong drink and various things that you have to reconcile the fact that Yeshua made water into wine. 
Some people have speculated they actually made it into grape juice and a bunch of these things are mistranslated. I'm not going to get into that. However, what's really going on here? What is the sign? What's the purpose of this miracle? Well, what the purpose of this miracle actually is, is it's showing that Yeshua himself had some of the same miracles that God gave to Moses. See, as far as Hebrews are concerned, when we're talking about the joy of life, the blessing of life, drinking wine, red wine, strong drink, it's about the joy of life. It's all about life. And blood is inside our bodies. The blood is our life. Our life is in the blood. As far as Hebrews are concerned, blood and wine, one and the same. So the fact that Moses was given a miracle to turn water into blood and Yeshua performed a miracle of water into wine, we can draw the conclusion it's basically the same miracle. And so what we see here is we see the same God that called Moses is the same God that called Yeshua to be the Messiah. That it's like we're not talking about two different gods here. We're talking about a, not talking about a different God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New No, it's like if you believed in Moses, if you followed him, if you understood his words and his instructions and what God did with him, it will help you to understand what God was doing with Yeshua as our Messiah that God Himself becoming the flesh of Yeshua and performed great miracles for us to understand. This is the first of the signs of Yeshua, and it was one of the signs of Moses. All right, so now let's, uh, let's go to uh, John chapter 4 at verse 46, where it says this. This is story, talking about a story of a man whose uh, son was healed. Instant healing, in fact. Yeshua came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made water into wine. And there a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And he heard that Yeshua had come to Judea into Galilee. And he went to him, and he implored him, and come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. And Yeshua said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman then said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Yeshua said to him, Go your way, your son lives. Not a physical sign that he actually revealed to any of the people that were there that saw. But he told them, your son lives. The man believed the word of Yeshua spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met with him and told him, saying, your son lives. And he inquired by them uh, the hour by which he got better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour and the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour that Yeshua said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is the second sign Yeshua did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. The second sign. It's actually recorded for us in the scripture. The second sign. Instant healing. Same sign gave to Moses. The instant healing of putting his hand into the cloak, becoming, coming out leprous, going in back into the cloak, coming out clean. Now, this, of course, you could just take that one and it says the second sign of Yeshua did, and it's like this is, again, signs of Moses, that God is doing the same thing. We also can go to Matthew chapter 8, first couple of verses, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. What's the first miracle that, that the Messiah did after the Sermon on the Mount? He healed the leper. The leper came to him, and he was healed, and he was cleansed. The ability to cleanse leprosy, which is an incurable disease, Yeshua did, and He performed that miracle, just like Moses could as well. Once again, these are signs and evidences. The God of Moses is the God of Yeshua, who sent Yeshua the Messiah and gave Him the power to speak these words. So what about the third sign? 
The third sign of Moses and the serpent and being able to put it down in on the ground becomes a serpent and then comes back and it becomes a staff again. Now there's some interesting speculation about, about some of these things because we have the Messiah specifically say to the people that it's like that surely the Son of Man will be lifted up as Moses' staff in the wilderness. In fact, I believe it specifically says that in chapter 3. At verse, uh, at verse 14 and 15. So we all know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Did you, do you ever have memorized the, word, the verses that came right before that? Well, here they are. Verse 14 of John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is, of course, the sign of which the crucifixion of the Messiah himself being raised up and whoever looked upon him was given life. Now, this also connects to a later story in our Torah where we're talking about the uh, serpents that came and bit the people and that Moses made a bronze serpent on top of a sign and a staff and he raised it up and whoever looked upon that, on that, they were healed. This, you can draw the, the, the connection of all that. Serpent, raised up in the wilderness, look upon it, healed. Yeshua performed that exact same sign. And we could, I think we can draw that out um, and, and we can explain it that way. Here's the other way that I like to see it as well. Is that when you're talking about a serpent, you're talking about something that a lot of people don't like. A lot of people are scared of serpents. When you're talking about a venomous serpent like a cobra, in ancient times, if you got bit by one of those things, you were a dead man. We also have the serpent that's the symbol and the representation of Hasatan, our adversary. That he's the one that was the serpent in the garden that was the mortal enemy of man. That the judgment upon both of them is that the serpent will, will bruise the heel of, of man and man will tr try to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent represents something that's evil. So why do we necessarily associate that and being lifted up, a snake being lifted up, and then that's the Messiah. That's what we're supposed to look at. This symbol of death is supposed to be our life. Actually, that's exactly what it's supposed to be, is that the serpent that represents death, that Moses was able to control it. He was able to, to, to have complete power and control over it. He took something that was inanimate, dead, not alive, his staff. Well, it was once alive because it was a tree branch here, but it was dead. And he put it down on the ground and then suddenly it becomes something alive. But that thing that it became alive is actually a symbol of death. And if that snake bit anybody or whatever, everybody would be afraid. They'd be fearful of it. Did Moses have any fear of the serpent? No. Because God commanded him, and he's like, pick it up by the tail. Just reach down, you go pick it up, and then suddenly that thing that nobody would have touched or would have approached, that symbol of death, Moses just walks up and picks it right up, turns back into a staff. So what's really being represented here? Let me tell you. What's really being represented here is a power over death. That snake, there was no fear in Moses of that snake. Everyone else was afraid. But we're talking about clearly a miracle. Is the miracle that the staff turned into a snake and then back into a staff? You know, that, the, the magicians of Egypt thought it was a magic trick. But what's really being represented here, perhaps the real miracle that's happening here, is the power over death. The thing that might kill you, you have no fear of it whatsoever. God has power over death. In fact, it specifically says that as well. In our scripture, 
Let me conclude with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50, it says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, that, shall not all, that we shall not all sleep, but we w- shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the death will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For the corruptible must put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That through our faith in Yeshua and what Yeshua truly has done for us is He has given us the power over death. He conquered death. Death could not hold Him. Three days later, He walked out. There, that tomb was empty, and death could not hold the Messiah down. And him, having the power of God, being God himself, showed power over death. This was also the sign of Moses. This is what he did. These are the power of things that God gave to Moses, the signs for him to do. It's exactly what Yeshua did as well. The power over death. And that is our testimony as believers of Yeshua. That we are made alive. That though we might be mortals, we one day will put on immortality and we have eternal life. And though we are corruptible, we must, through, God, through our testimony of Yeshua, put on incorruption so that we can then live as God lives. And giving us all of these blessings and, and these things. And that we will all be changed one day at the last trumpet to be incorruptible. To be immortal in which death will have no power over us. That's what we all could wish for. That's what we all hope for, is that we have no fear of death because we believe in a God that has power over death, and through our belief in Him, we have eternal life beyond death. Death has no sting and has no victory over us. We've learned that from Moses, and we also have learned that through Yeshua, our Messiah. So with that said, I hope that we are blessed here on this Sabbath day as we uh, close out uh, this week and receive the rest and the refreshment of Sabbath. And we are encouraged and strengthened once again in our most holy faith in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion, for the beginning of a new book of our Torah cycle. And Father, I pray that you would once again make these words alive and powerful to us, encouraging us, strengthening us, Lord and that we can continue to teach the principles that you have taught from many years ago, Lord, from ancient times through Moses and the patriarchs in the life of Israel. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for the words of the New Testament and of the first century, Lord, that can encourage us, teach us, and strengthen us, Lord, that you are the same God of the Old Testament as of the New Testament, and you are the same God today, Lord, who continues to deliver their people, from the slavery of sin, from bondage, from any spirit that is not of you, Father. 
So may we be strengthened, Lord, in our most holy faith, in all the things that you have done in our lives in modern times, and may we be encouraged of all the stories and the words of encouragement that come from ancient times as well. We love you, we bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.